From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Approaching or entering the postseason, momentum is a buzzword you often hear, and it can be critical in determining whether a team looks back on a good year as opposed to a great year, maybe even special. This past weekend saw a number of Gator teams throwing their weight around, some doing it dramatically like softball, others doing it emphatically like lacrosse. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter back from vacation and dive into a walk-off championship for softball, four straight series wins for baseball, lacrosse's AAC domination, the impending reunion of Tim Tebow and Urban Meyer, and more. Then, men's tennis senior Josh Goodage stops by to discuss how he hopped the pond from London to Gainesville and what it will take for the top-seeded men's tennis team to claim its first national championship. But first, Walk-offs are certainly fun in the moment and also in hindsight, but they're generally very stressful before they happen, especially when you consider the Gators were mere strikes away from losing out on an SEC title. But Julia Cottrell changed that story with one swing of the bat, and as Scott noted to open our chat, with two walk-off homers this weekend alone, epic endings have become part of Florida softball lore. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, the Gators softball program, you're right, Adam. It certainly has uh, shown, I guess, a knack for the dramatic, uh, you know, over the years. I still remember the postseason a few years ago when the walk-off home run to beat Texas A&M, correct? Yeah, yeah, and the Super Regionals. Yeah, yeah. Super Regional. Uh, you know, remember that, and guess what? Uh, the different different cast of characters this past weekend – but same team in Texas A&M, another walk-off home run, this time by Julia Cottrell. Comeback win, Adam. Uh, they beat Texas A&M 6-5, clinched their ninth SEC regular season title in program history, which is tops in the league. And, you know, we've talked about recently, you know, just about this program and what Tim Walton has done. He, he's doing a lot just the same as Kevin LaSullivan's doing in baseball. You know, they, they have great teams year in and year out, and they lose a star player here and there, and you're like, okay, maybe this is the year it's going to dip, you know, a little bit until they, they find the next great player. Obviously, in softball, Kelly Barnhill, you know, when she left, you're like, okay, you know, maybe this is the time they'll take a dip, they'll find somebody else, and sure enough, they, they've just – they transitioned – seamlessly Adam and they're they're 40 and 8 gonna be right there in the hunt again you know during the postseason they'll be talked about as one of the favorites uh from top to bottom is this Tim Walton's best team I I don't know but it's certainly one that's having another great year um he they it's still got a lot of work to do to obviously match some of the success that he's had in the program when you're talking about national championships and stuff but this is a talented team and you know, winning the SEC, clinching the title in a walk-off home run like that, they did. I mean, you saw the reaction of the team. It was a huge moment, and it was a huge moment for the fans who were there. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it wasn't packed like we've seen some of those settings in past years, but you you just look at that win as one. It could catapult this team into the, the postseason, and maybe uh, some special things are ahead for this group. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. They went into the weekend needing a sweep to claim a share of the SEC title. Arkansas was already in the clubhouse with their first SEC title in the history of their program for softball. Quick note, by the way, with Arkansas, uh, if you look around the, the league, they've gotten really good at a lot of this, especially on the women's side, sports where they were frequently last or near last in the conference. They, they've become a, a really complete athletic program. You're constantly seeing them in the mix uh, with, you know, with all these other sports we talk about, especially in the spring. So, Good, good on Arkansas stepping up across the board. Not just great facilities now, but also putting a good product on the field. Um, but they they knew that you know they had to share the SEC title, and Florida needed two walk off wins against A and M just to tie them. And then with the tiebreakers, they become the number one seed in the SEC tournament. So Arkansas, is th- if if you're Arkansas, think about that. 
you're sitting there knowing that you're just they need one loss to claim an outright SEC title, and you have to watch two walk-offs. I mean, that's got to be that. I would not have wanted to be someone in that Arkansas clubhouse watching this weekend to see what happened. I'm guessing that, you know, they probably had an upset stomach after the first one and just threw up totally after the second one, Adam. If, <laughs> if you're the Razorbacks, not a uh, not a way to, you want to spend your weekend. But on the flip side of that, uh, Tim Walton, uh, he's dancing around the dugout with his team. And, and if, if the Gators uh, can match anything uh, close to what they did in the, the final regular season series against Texas A&M, uh, it's going to be quite a postseason for them. Yeah, no question. So softball now at the uh, the end of their regular season, moving into their postseason. Uh, on the baseball side, they're getting close. Two weekends left uh, in SEC play before they head to the tournament. Uh, and, and Scott, you know, they, they continue to grind, and they don't always. It's not always as pretty as, as you'd like it to be. And you know, they go to Kentucky, they lose game one, come back with big wins in game two, game three. They're taking series sort of under the radar, but you know, if you keep winning series, I mean, that's what you need to do in baseball. Softball, you usually need sweeps. On the baseball side, you just got to take two or three, and if you keep doing that, you're on a, on a good path going forward. Yeah, I mean, the, the last two series, Adam, uh, it happened at home against Vanderbilt where they lose the first game and win the next two. Uh, they take that up to Kentucky, and the same scenario unfolds. And what that tells me is the weekend, uh, they're, not, they're, they're showing some resiliency there, and – Doing it on the road at Kentucky, uh, especially after you, you you win that series against Vanderbilt at home, and mm-hmm. then you you go up to Kentucky and lose on Friday night, and you're like, you know, you could easily see, okay, what's going to happen here because they can quickly lose that momentum with another loss. But they bounced back with some good pitching over the weekend from uh, from Mace and Hunter Barco, who, you know, I don't think you can underestimate what he's been doing on Sundays. Uh, he's He's been really big, or not always on Sundays, sometimes on Saturdays, depending on, you know, the day the series starts. But mm-hmm. he's, their ga- he's their game three starter. I think he's really emerged as one of the top, uh, you know, day three starters in the country. I still think Kevin O'Sullivan, I mean, it looks like he's he's sticking with this Mace, Aleman, Barco, uh, letting left, which come out of the bullpen for now. Uh, he may switch that around as far as the order. Uh, this coming weekend when Georgia comes to town, still waiting uh, for the final details there. But regardless, um, the pitching is doing well. I think they've won, I want to say, 9 of 12 in the SEC. And they're, two, they're within two games of Tennessee in the East. So it, it, there's something to play for with every series. Uh, talking about sweep, they probably may need a sweep unless Tennessee goes in the tank uh, to catch them here at the end. But if you're, if you're taking two or three in the SEC every weekend, that means you're playing pretty well. And um, I think if they can just stay consistent like this going into the postseason, it will bode well for them uh, going into the SEC tournament. But, yeah, it's a team that it seems to be finding its stride a little bit, Adam. Which shows you, too, the impact you know a big win can have at the right time. Uh, you mentioned Tennessee. When they went to Knoxville, they were right on the verge of getting swept. And they came back, Sage, that come from behind win uh, on Sunday. And then since then, they've won four straight SEC series. So including you know Missouri, Auburn, and then the highlight obviously being Vanderbilt in this most recent Kentucky. So you, know, you always, I think during a season that's as long, especially as a, as a baseball season is, you try and look for where is that pivot? Where's the turning point? And if Florida continues to you know, to go the right direction down the stretch and they and they have a strong postseason run, I think you'll look at that Sunday game against Tennessee and, and you'll look at that as, as the, the reason why. Yeah, that is going to be the turning point, whatever success this team has. Uh, like you said, I, I remember we talked about it when it happened. As, well, could this be that turning point? And you look in the four weeks since a month or so and what they've done, I, I think it's safe to say that did play a factor in some ways, uh, just find some more consistency because you knew the schedule was going to get tough each week and week out. I mean, do you look at the SEC, Adam? It is just loaded. I mean, it really is. You're going to have, what, maybe 9, 10, 11 teams from the conference in the tournament, um, and they're all vying for uh, 
home field advantage basically uh, with the way the format is for the tournament this year. So all these series are huge. I think Florida's handling some things there well so far. They can continue to win out in the SEC, at least win out these series. And Georgia coming to town and always, uh, you know, Florida, Georgia, it's always big no matter what sport it is. But I think people are getting a little more excited about this baseball team. And I just think that all that potential that we talked about at the start of the season being number one in all the polls. I think we're seeing that kind of team starting to emerge. Uh, what does it mean two months from now? I don't know, but I do like the way this team's playing. I think it's grown up some is probably the best way to say it. And also think Kevin O'Sullivan. I mean, this is what makes him a good coach. He's mm. not afraid. He's not afraid to tinker with the pieces and he, he, you know, he he yeah, he has a program that's filled with professional prospects, and a lot of people are in their ears. And you know, let's face it: when you're that kind of a player, you all you got egos, and you have expectations of your roles. But Sully, he doesn't care. But he's gonna he's gonna make the changes that he needs to to put out the best club he he thinks he can. And I'm, you know, sometimes the moves work. Maybe sometimes they don't. I think if you look at his track record, they work more often than they don't. And so far, I think he's pushed the right buttons here. And and now we'll see uh, if they can finish strong. Really, kind of the softball program is kind of lining up parallel with the baseball. They're both going into the postseason. You know, high expectations to start the season. They've they've both had little bumps here and there, but now they're playing well. So we'll see if they can both continue. While we're talking uh, postseasons. Lacrosse uh, just, you know, crushed the competition as they generally do uh, to win their conference title. Uh, and now, you know, they're in the NCAA tournament as the sixth seed. It's it's a weird tournament just by the nature of the teams that play. They have 29 teams in the NCAA tournament, which is, I don't know how exactly they got to that number. I don't follow across closely enough to know why. Uh, but Florida's there as the, the sixth seed. They're going to get to host in this opening weekend you look at their record this year, they're 16-2, right? The two losses, the one of them came at North Carolina, the number one team in the country. They lost that game 11-5. to uh, And then their other loss, interestingly enough, was against Jacksonville earlier this year. Jacksonville beat them by a goal, and that's who they're most likely to face if they beat Mercer and advance into that next round. They'd play the winner of Vanderbilt and Jacksonville. And Again, for people that don't know a lot about the sport, you probably just assume, oh, it's Vanderbilt because you know that name better. Uh, but JU, you know, they've developed a good program there. The Dolphins have, and they're, you know, they play Florida pretty much every year, at least once. And uh, they could be the ones standing in the way of Florida getting to that next level and also uh, having a chance to avenge one of their only losses this year. So I think that that kind of an interesting storyline that's uh, that's developed around this weekend. Yeah, Adam, it's definitely an interesting storyline considering that, you know, like you said, Florida did lose to Jacksonville earlier in the year. There's just such a history with the, the two programs. you got to remember, college lacrosse in Florida is something that's really just grown a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. So you got Mindy McCord leading the Jacksonville program, Mandy O'Leary leading the Gators. I mean, both coaches have really done a, a nice job uh, building the sport up uh, in in Florida, and now you're seeing more high school programs pop up, it seems like, every year. And most of these players on these two teams, they're still coming from up in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania. But um, you, you feel like the Florida-Jacksonville, I think with that, that win by ja- Jacksonville earlier this year, I, I think the rivalry certainly heated up. So it's a real rivalry now because Florida was beating them up for so many years. But uh, So if it does – come to fruition where those two teams play in the early rounds of the NCAA tournament, you can bet that's going to be an intense game. Yeah, Jacksonville's made the last six NCAA tournaments, not seven, including this. So they're, they're becoming a force. And as you said, it's a sign that the sport in general is really starting to grow in the state of Florida, which while it creates a, a short-term adversary in Jacksonville, long-term, probably good for the program, good for the sport as well to have that talent. Um, I want to talk about something else happening in Jacksonville. Uh, it's a good segue. It was an accident. I didn't know this one was, this one just sort of happened here. Uh, but the, the big news this week that got Twitter to, uh, you know, to about level 11 or 12 was of course the news that Tim Tebow is going to be joining the Jags as a tight end. 
Uh, this obviously is because of Urban Meyer being there, and you know he, he thinks that Tebow can possibly help them win. It, it's really it's it's another one of these long shot things, Scott. I mean, Tebow's been out of the league for six years. He's never played the position before, uh, but. There's no question that pretty much all the attention in Jacksonville is now going to be on that story. And and somehow Trevor Lawrence, number one overall pick and big, you know, biggest sure thing in recent history, he's going to be a he's going to be a, a subplot in, in his own movie, it would seem. Well, there's only probably one guy who could make that happen in this specific case. That's Tim Tebow, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Gators legend, a Jacksonville high school legend, uh, an NFL, what's the nomad, I guess you would say. Denver, the Jets, Eagles, and now here it is. Like you said, since 2015 with that brief stint with the Eagles, we haven't seen Tim Tebow in the NFL. We've seen him you know, chasing his goal to be a Major League Baseball player in the Mets farm system. Got as high as Triple A, finally retired uh, from baseball, and you thought, well, maybe, maybe Tim Tebow, the athlete, is finally hanging it up. And nope. Urban Myers in Jacksonville as head coach, and suddenly, you know, you, you saw these rumors pop up, Adam, uh, you know, right after Urban took over. And, you know, you kind of laughed at him. You didn't take too much into it. But you knew, you know, that if there was any chance, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see once they talk about it, how this developed. Did Tebow reach out first? Did Urban mm-hmm. actually, hey, Tim, you know, I, I would love to have you on this team just to, in some way, help you know, my first year in the league, you know, and it'll be interesting as that, as we learn more details, but yeah, I mean, you know, let's look at it realistically, Adam, you know, it's okay. It's Tim Tebow. If he makes the roster as the 53rd man on the roster, that's fine. I mean, he, he could probably do some special teams. Yeah. Play, play tight. And we know one thing about Tebow is he's definitely stayed in great physical shape. Ever sure. since he left, got—I mean—he's always been physically in great shape. So that's not going to be an issue. He's, and he's a big, strong guy. Can he catch the ball? Is he a great blocker? I don't know if we know the answer to either one of those questions because he's never had to use those skill sets consistently on the field uh, since he's been, you know, <laughs> in high school to now as a 33-year-old. He'll be 34. In August, so by the time training camp starts and the season rolls around, he'll be 34-year-old tied in in the NFL who hasn't played in a regular season game since 2012 as a quarterback with the Denver Broncos. So that's a long sentence and a lot of details to unpack, but that's the reality of the situation. And um, if there's anybody that can can make this work, go at least to add some contributing factor, I think it's Tebow just because of his personality because of his optimism, because of his relationship with Urban Meyer. Uh, even if he, you know, doesn't do much on the field, I think he maybe could do some stuff behind the scenes as far as just, you know, impl- you know, getting guys used to Meyer's system, his, his style of coaching. I don't know. It's different than college football. Obviously, these are all grown men, and uh, the NFL is a different world. But uh, if you don't produce, you're not going to be around much, so – you know, even as the 53rd guy on the roster, you're going to have to play some special teams and, and show that you you can contribute on the field in some way. So it's going to be very interesting to watch, Adam. Uh, I just know this. If he does anything, uh, I can only imagine. What do you think would happen on social media, let's say, first game? You know, he comes out there and nobody's thinking much about him. And suddenly Trevor Lawrence drops back and throws a sideline pass behind the line to Tebow. Tebow winds up and throws somehow a touchdown pass. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can any of that stuff happen? I don't know. I doubt it. But it would sure be fun if something like that did happen because it would just add to the Tebow legend, right? Social media would probably be down for maintenance for at least a short period of time. Oh, man. Um, I mean, there's nobody that moves the needle like Tebow. And it's funny because here he is. He's been off – I mean, he left Florida in 2009. So that's 12 years ago now. And it was his last season with the Gators. Uh, he's been out of the NFL, as you said, since 2015. Really, since 2012, since he was a player with the Broncos. And of course, we all remember that great moment he had in Denver. I think, what was it, the 11 playoffs when he had that touchdown against yeah. the Steelers. 
to Thomas to win in overtime. I mean, that was a magical moment. It was, and it was, but it, it didn't build from there as far as his quarterback play. And of course, we all heard the suggestions that he should have moved the tight end years ago and he could have been an NFL player all this time. Uh, it's a lot easier to do it. What twenty five to thirty three? Yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a couple of factors going in his favor. I mean, he obviously at thirty three hasn't taken the football punishment for the last several years, uh, and and he stayed in great physical shape. So he's thirty three. Is a you know, it's a certainly old to be a unproven tight end. But again, I think if anybody can do it, Tebow might find a way. But I kind of I'm on the side of the fence, you know. Some people just ridicule this and make fun of it, and like, what are they doing? And you know, that's a reasonable thought, you know, if you're looking at just the analytics and the possibilities and the percentages. But then there's also, man, it's just Tim Tebow being Tim Tebow. He's still chasing the stream, uh, maybe playing in NFL over a period of time and doing something as a player still while he still can. He's, his window is very small now. I mean, yeah. you know, even if he does succeed, what do you think? I mean, two, three years? So I credit him for trying, man. Um, and I think it'd be great if he does something. But here's here's the big, you know, whatever we set up to this point, Adam, here's the deal. We're talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars in early May. I'm pretty sure this is the first time in my life I've actually ever <laughs> talked about the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oftentimes, they don't get talked about in September, October, November either. Uh, so May is way, way ahead of schedule. Yeah, I mean, if you had, I still remember Fred Taylor and Mark Brunel and Tom Coughlin. That was the last time I talked yeah. about the Jacks when they beat my Cowboys in the 96 playoffs, I think. That's probably about the last time I thought about the Cowboys or the uh, Jaguars. Uh, I want to move on to our PAT now. And uh, in lieu of a, a debated topic, I'm, I'm going to talk about Scott's adventure here. Because I know something that's very important in, in my household is checking states off the list. My fiance is is uh, her one of her life goals is to visit all fifty states. I'm I'm pretty well ahead of her right now. I think my number I think I'm at thirty nine, uh, and I could have gotten a few more boxes checked if I was in the the Carter family because uh, while while I just watched the movie Nomadland to experience the Badlands, you actually went there and uh, you did a little. Little tour of the heartland. Tell us, uh, tell us about some of the things you got to see last week. Yeah, yeah, man. After this year, I think we've all well, we all, we all need to, a break, right? We all need to probably get outside. And so basically, uh, my family we had a vacation canceled right when the pandemic started to the Grand Canyon, and so you know, hey, we understand the world's in a, in a global pandemic. We're not going to be traveling anytime soon, right? So about ten months later, we finally felt okay. You know, we. We feel comfortable maybe getting on a plane, going out to the Grand Canyon again. Well, guess what? I got COVID right then, and it canceled our second time at the Grand Canyon. So number three time, we say, you know, we're not going to the Grand Canyon. Let's, let's just get – we got to go somewhere because it's been 14 months, and, you know, as much as we love Gainesville and the Gators and UF, you know, you got to have some variety in life, right, Adam? So <laughs> It's a spice uh, of life, I'm told. Yeah, so anyway, we, uh, my wife's really good at planning, and I just said, pick somewhere and let's go. So she picks a trip out to South Dakota, Wyoming, and a little venture up into Montana. And those were three states that I'd never been to, and certainly three states my kids had never been to or my wife. And so that's where we went. And the, what did you see? I mean, I'd have to I – mean, we saw Mount Rushmore. That's something you have, obviously have to see while you're in South Dakota – but the Black Hills National Forest, Custer State Park, which was right around there, unbelievably beautiful. I mean, you're talking about it. You're just driving around and hundreds of buffalo, goats, sheep, uh, I saw coyotes. I mean, everything. I mean, everything basically except the grizzly bear chasing our car. Uh, but it, it was just a really cool experience. Then we went over to the Devil's Tower in, my, in uh, Wyoming, uh, went to the Badlands, which is just a unique kind of landscape that i'd never seen before it's just a beautiful area uh yeah, i mean the you know having lived here in florida for all these years adam i while we were out there i looked it up i think florida is around 20 million in population now <laughs> you're you're out in south dakota and you're like you'll be driving like 15 miles 20 miles you know, have we passed the car out here so i looked yeah. up the population the people? i think 
yeah, I think the whole population for the state is under a million. So it just shows you the difference. And of course, we had great weather. and Just one of those places where you don't necessarily expect to go spend uh, 10 days or so, but one that I really enjoyed. And it knocked a few more states off my list, Adam. And, and if people don't want to do that themselves, they can donate to the uh, Scott Carter Fund for 50 States Initiative, which we we need to get Scott to Alaska, Hawaii, North Dakota, and Idaho. Am I right? That's we that will be the the complete bingo card. I know I felt so bad being in South Dakota and not going up to North Dakota. We were about three hours away from the state line, and my wife mm-hmm. and kids are like, "No way, we're wasting a six-hour round trip just to step foot in North Dakota." And I need to go to all four of those places too. So. You know, if you want to send Scott and I together, I mean, we'll, we'll do a podcast to explain what we're seeing from the road. Um, but more likely, we'll, we'll just do a podcast about what's going on in Gator Athletics, which is probably more suited to our expertise. Uh, and we hope we've been informative about what's going on right now. And we'll certainly be following everything happening this weekend. Lots of postseason action for the Gators, so make sure to stay locked in to everything happening on FloridaGators.com. And you can follow Scott at Gators Scott on Twitter. Uh, Scott, thank you so much, and uh, try and in, enjoy a return to normal life for a little bit, okay? That's right. Back to uh, back to the Gators grind and looking forward to that baseball series against Georgia, and uh, appreciate it, Adam. Tennis is truly an international sport, so it would make sense that one of the key ingredients to Brian Shelton's top-seeded men's tennis squad hails from outside our borders. The UK, to be exact. Josh Goodger didn't start his career as a Gator, but fate brought him to where he is now, looking to help the Gators achieve history. Ahead of the team's Sweet 16 matchup on Monday in Orlando, we spoke to the Brit about his early years in London and how he became a tennis junkie. Uh-huh. So I grew up in, uh, in London, in a county called Surrey, um, with my, my parents and my two older brothers. So I was the I was the youngest, and I I mean I've lived there my whole life. I went to a public school, just a pretty pretty uh, ordinary ordinary kid growing up. There was nothing out of the ordinary. My brother was the first one who started playing tennis when when he was younger. So that's how I kind of got into it, and um, and then he he ended up he quit tennis because he had crazy anger management issues. <laughs> um, and so and then I just kept on playing since then. Really enjoyed it. Went to went to a public high school where they had like a like an academy that was interrelated to the school. Mm-hmm. So I went there during high school. Other than that, lived a pretty normal life. Did your parents have athletic backgrounds, or was your brother mm-hmm. the one that kind of started it? Neither my my dad he he played soccer. Um, obviously called football in the UK. He mm-hmm. he played uh, soccer. He was in his twenties. Uh, he was pretty. He was decent. He played at a pretty good level. Um, but other than that, nothing to do with tennis. My mum never played any sport. Um, pretty much just me and my brother were the were the only ones. How painful is it for you to say the word soccer? Have you gotten used to it at this point? It, or it, it kills me. It, <laughs> it, it kills me every, every single time. And everyone always tries to correct me as well. Everyone right. always tries to say it, it's soccer, not football. So I've, I mean, I've been in America for a long time. So it's, <laughs> it's been, a, it's been four years of it now. Right. Um, so when, when you picked up a racket for the first time, what was it? Was it, was it because of your brother or what, what inspired you to, to start playing? Yeah. So, I mean, we were, um, we were members at like a local club when I was younger. And so, I mean, I would just go up there to just to swim and stuff with my family. Um, and obviously I, I watched my brother play at the club and then I guess my parents wanted me to give it a go as well, since my eldest brother did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started playing with him a little bit and then I, I, I enjoyed it. And then I just, um, proceeded to take lessons and, play like with with younger kids just to play for fun and then and then when I was a little bit older I started to take a little bit more seriously and play competitions and then yeah it's led led me to this so we mentioned uh football a moment ago I'm trying I don't want to I don't want to offend you I want this to be a safe space outside of all the other (laughs) Americans that that corrupt it for you um but obviously when people think about the UK that's the sport they think about but what what role does tennis play in you know in British sports culture it's, I mean, it's nowhere near as big, of course, because in when you're in high school and stuff, you're always doing games lessons and it's always football, football, football. Sometimes we'll play rugby and cricket, but 
tennis was never it's never really the the main sport in the uk so i mean i guess it's kind of like a it's behind the scenes a little bit it's still it's still big in the uk and there's still a lot of tournaments and and a lot of a lot of clubs where you can play at which is great um but it's it was never i mean i played i played football a lot as well when i was in high school and so yeah but i guess i enjoy i enjoy tennis more and i was i was definitely better at it um but it's yeah it's nowhere near as big when i think about tennis in the uk i obviously i immediately go to wimbledon um it, it, i mean outside of wimbledon are there a lot of high profile tournaments or is it basically like the entire the entire tennis culture just gears up for that one two week stretch yeah the the uk is is not it's not very good outside of the grass school tournaments obviously you have queens and you have um wimbledon um and you have bournemouth uh, sorry, Eastbourne. But other than that, you, there's not many pro tournaments like on the lower level, like a lot of other countries that have a lot of futures and mm-hmm. challenges. But the UK, it's, it doesn't have many of that. So it's kind of tough at the, I guess, the lower level if you want to play tournaments in, in the UK because there's not really many opportunities for that. Right. Did you have a chance to go to Wimbledon growing up? Is that, I mean, is that something that a lot of people do or is it very exclusive? Yeah, I went every single year. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Because you can... You can, I mean, my, my dad sometimes through work was able to get some tickets. Um, what, as I got older, most of the times I would, you can queue up like it's mm-hmm. through a park. You go th- like a long line through a park getting into Wimbledon and you, we would go there at like 6am and you would queue up for, and you would get in at like 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So yeah, but it's good fun. I mean, there's like, you go with your friends. Um, yeah. There's a massive field where you queue up and you can just, you know, we'll play soccer, uh, we'll throw frisbee, we'll do whatever, and then we'll get in and obviously we'll go on the first couple of days because that's when it's the busiest and you, when you have the ground pass, of course, you can't go into center or, or number one. So you, there'll be a lot of good matches on the other court. So that's I, I did that a lot of the times and then a couple of times I was able to get tickets into court one or center court, I would, I would do that as well. What were some of the most memorable matches you were able to see at Wimbledon? Um, oof. It's actually been a while since I've been because I haven't been in like over four years because since I've been in America, I've never been able to go. Mm-hmm. Um, most memorable would actually be at Queens, uh, funny enough, when mm-hmm. Nalbanian played against Chilich. And mm-hmm. it's not memorable in a good way, but Nalbanian got disqualified for kicking the um, the board next to the uh, the linesman's chair. That's right. That's right. And, and he cut open his uh, shin and he got disqualified. That was probably one of the most memorable ones. But I, I also watched Nadal play at Queens as well. Um, and he had an unbelievable match. Um, I believe it was against uh, Federer or Djokovic that time. And that was probably one of the most memorable. It was an amazing match in three sets. But in terms of Wimbledon, not not um, too much. But a lot of good memories from the O2, the mm-hmm. ATP World Tour Finals. We went there a couple of times, um, managed to get tickets. Um, one time I got to go, we actually got a box, which was which was amazing um, through my dad's work, luckily enough. Um, and, you know, that was like living the dream. You got the food, you got the drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can't complain there. So as you were sort of developing as a player, you know, I'm thinking about this through the the American lens of, well, obviously you started to get recruited. You're looking at colleges. What is the, what's the path like over there when you realize that you wanted to pursue tennis is there a, you know, a, a university scholarship system in the same way or do you have to look at it differently? So there's, you can do it a couple of different ways. There's um, companies that, that you're able to go through that will help you like not only through looking at for scholarships and they can contact people, um, but they also help you through like tutoring for the, for the SAT. Hmm. So obviously that's a big thing in the UK because the American uh, education system is a lot different. Yeah. So the SAT was very difficult for me because of how different it was to the education system growing up in the UK. Um, so that I, I went through a company, but you can also do it by yourself just by contacting uh, universities on your own by emailing them or sending them uh, Facebook messages, which I did myself a couple um, of schools, but also through the, the company that I used. So how did, how did you make the decision to pursue playing in the U.S.? I mean, what what were your options otherwise if you didn't go this route? And why did you decide to do it the way that you did? Well, pretty much no other options. Um, <laughs> I, 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 was, I was not a good junior at all. I didn't have very good results. I was nowhere near as good as I, I am today. Um, 
And so, I mean, the only option, well, also because of financially, the amount of money that America has through universities is trying to be compared to, to the UK. Um, and of course, the tennis is not as big at universities in the UK. Um, so I knew I wanted it from the age of like 16. And so, yeah, but I did not have the opportunity to go to any good schools um, just because of obviously the way that you get recruiters through your ITF junior ranking. But because mm-hmm. I didn't play many at all, just because they're so expensive, for them solely looking at that to get into a, a good D1 school, that I didn't have many options at all. So you started your career at Tulsa. I'm thinking, perfect sense. You are from London to Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> um, how did you ultimately end up there? And I'm scared to ask, but what kind of culture shock did you experience? Uh, so I was, I mean, I... I visited University Pacific in California. That's nice. Um, and but they, I mean, I wasn't aware until I got there on the last day that they basically couldn't offer me barely any scholarship that we could afford. That kind of fell through last minute, as well as Wisconsin. Um, the coach Scoville Jenkins, who's now at Oklahoma State, um, he came to the UK to watch me play, and this, I, I guess he didn't like what he saw, and he <laughs> he he, off, he they didn't offer me a good scholarship either, so. When then schools fell through, which I was probably going to go to, I then got a message from Tulsa and offered me a good scholarship. And I couldn't really say no because I had no other options. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Tulsa. Um, I mean, they were, before I went, they were actually pretty good. They were, I think, uh, one stage they were like top 20, top 25. And so after I did a little bit of research, for me at that time, it was perfect because... I couldn't have I couldn't have done much better along with the scholarship they offered. I didn't visit, um, wow. which I guess w- was a mistake. Um, so the first time going to Tulsa was when I started school and started everything. And uh, and in terms of the culture, I mean, yeah, it was it was a big shock because you know, being from the UK, you hear about American college, and it's you know, I mean. Pr- before that, I was watching Blue Mountain State on Netflix, and uh, that was probably a mistake. I was thinking college was going to be insane. It was not what I expected. It was a tiny school, small private school. There was not much going on there at all. Um, the people in Oklahoma compared to the people from the UK was a big, big change. But in my freshman year, I enjoyed it. You know, um, it was especially since I didn't have many opportunities as a kid in the UK. It was, I mean, the facility at Tulsa is incredible. Hmm. They, they have a lot of, of money. They have a lot of um, private donors who put a lot of money into the tennis. And so the, the facilities, the, the university itself was very nice. But other than the university, there's nothing going on there. So when you say it was so different, what were the most challenging parts of adjusting to the culture and the people? Um, I mean, I think... The, I mean, the language barrier for a start. Um, a lot of people couldn't actually understand what I was saying. Um, <laughs> they say that I speak really quick, which was, uh, which was interesting since we speak the same language. Right, um, right. Was, was a lot of people in class would just stare at me for five minutes straight and have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> um, that and, I mean, a, a lot of Americans, I don't know, <laughs> it's tough saying this, but I thought a lot of them were kind of rude at the start. Um <laughs> So, uh, but I mean, I, I was surrounded by a good group of people with my team. I got along with them very well, which made it a lot easier at the start. After your sophomore year, you made the decision to transfer. So I'm curious, what made you want to change and, and how did Florida come into play? Um, I didn't have a very good relationship with my coach, Tulsa, and he um, didn't want me to transfer for after my freshman year. So we made an agreement that I would save my sophomore year. I wasn't overly happy about it, but I mean, I was playing one and two in the lineup. So I, and we've had a tough schedule. So um, in terms of the matches I was getting, it was always very high. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the reason I wanted to transfer was just the professionalism of the program. I wanted to go somewhere where it was going to set me up for professional tennis. And I felt like being there would not give me the best opportunity of doing that. Uh, so that's the reason I wanted to transfer. When I was transferring, I was looking at different schools. Uh, it was completely different to before college where I had no opportunities and no offers. It right. then led to almost going wherever I wanted, which was very overwhelming. Um, it was exciting. And I visited a couple of different schools and Florida just felt like it was the best fit in terms of what I was looking for with a professional program coming here and seeing the way they practiced and how professional coach was and, 
I mean, he said to me straight, look, if, if you're not wanting to work hard and you're not wanting to go into a program where it's going to be serious and you're going to have to work hard, it's going to be professional, then this is not the place for you. And when he said that, I mean, that was exactly what I was looking for. So that was the challenge that I wanted. Now, I know when you came and I've read about you even talking about some of the issues you have with time management, accountability. As you worked through that with Coach Shelton, how did you get to a place where you understood his expectations of you and, and vice versa? Yeah, I I, I mean, I think because where I was at Tulsa, I, it wasn't like to get away with things I would not be able to get away with here at Florida. And the expectations he had in me for it were extremely high and they still are extremely high. But I think that that's great. And it's forced me and allowed me to become a better player and a better person. And um, once I, I knew that those, those were the expectations and there'll be consequences for not following them expectations, um, that's when things started to click into place. That's led to the success that personally I'm having as well as the team because he mm-hmm. has all them expectations on everyone. I read that I think what was one of your first practices, you, you showed up a minute late and in flip-flops and that, that did not fly. Is am I getting yeah, that right? Yeah, that did not fly. No, it was, <laughs> it also wasn't one practice. I'm a nightmare at that. At the start, I would always just turn up in my flip-flops and uh, no socks and you would hate it more than anything in the world. Um, but I've been, this year I've been so much better. I've been so much better with my time management. I've been coming to practice all the time. Uh, I haven't had to go into coach's office to have the conversation <laughs> about it. So so that makes life a lot easier for the both of us. Right. Uh, so last year, you guys win the SEC championship. You're riding high. You're about to go in NCAAs. And then everything gets shut down with COVID. I'm curious, what, what was that like for you? And what did you do? I mean, did you go home? Were you stuck here? Like, take me through that time and, and how you kind of dealt with it. Yeah, it was a massive shock, obviously, just coming to Florida as well. Like, it was the, it was the second year coming here. I obviously wanted to play as much as possible because I didn't know how much longer I would have had because if that had, that had ended, then this would have been my... Sorry, that was my first year. And if that had ended, then I would only have one more season to play. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened, it, I mean, it was a big shock. I mean, no one really knew what to do. I mean, when that happened, I booked my flight literally that day and I flew mm-hmm. the next couple of days because of not being able to get into the country if I didn't fly soon enough because right. they were starting to close down the um, the borders. So, I mean, I flew home immediately. The UK was pretty strict on it. So there wasn't, there wasn't much I did at home for a very long time. Um, but I knew that if I didn't go home straight away that I would have been here for a, a very long time and would not have been able to get back. I mean, I'm sure it's similar in a lot of ways, but what was the... What was the London quarantine experience like? I mean, were you able to get out and at least stay active? Were you just were you watching Netflix all day? Like, how did that work for you? Uh, you're allowed to leave the house once a day for physical activity. Okay. In the park, in the park, or some all the gyms and everything was closed, so you can go out for a walk. Or but that's it. And it's it's only recently started getting better. They've eased the lockdowns now, um, but for a long time it it remained like that. But I mean, I'm one person who sometimes thrives off of staying in and watching Netflix. It's, <laughs> it's not something that makes me depressed or I'm upset yeah. about. What was what was in the queue? What what did you knock out during the uh, the lockdown period? Oh my god, so many movies. Um, I watched Shooter. It's about like an American soldier when he was in the war. He um, now like trying to get revenge on him. It mm-hmm. was a very good series. But I was watching so many things. I've probably gone through the whole Netflix. Someone did say last year, I, I talked to a baseball player who said he had finished Netflix. I said, you get finished Netflix. They got new stuff every day as a guy, but I've seen everything. I moved on from it. I don't think I finished Netflix. That's very impressive, but I've definitely <laughs> gone through, I've definitely gone through a lot of them. So how did you get back? Like, when did you get back into the country? So that was, it's a, that was an interesting story. So I had to go to Turkey for two weeks because Turkey, you could fly to America because they had no travel restrictions. Huh. But you had to. But if you were in the UK with within two weeks, you would not be able to fly to the US. Okay. So I had to go to Turkey for two weeks before I could then fly to America. Wow. But funny enough, one week into that trip in Turkey, they then announced in the UK that you could fly internationally to America. So I basically went to Turkey for no reason. Yeah. What did you What did you do in in Turkey for two weeks? Um, it actually was not bad at all. I went to the pool. It was like a holiday. <laughs> I went to the pool. I was not there by myself. I actually okay. went with uh, a British guy called Tom Bright, who plays at Auburn. Um, so I was there with him for two weeks because he was the one who told me about it. So I was there with him for two weeks. We would go to the gym, go to the pool, 
eat out, restaurants. It was pretty nice, actually. We talked earlier about some of the culture shock you've experienced at times. Which parts of American culture have you most taken to? Uh, and then which ones still just don't work for you? Um, I've started to get a little bit more into I like going to the football games a lot. Okay. Um, I've started to understand and appreciate the, the American sports a lot more. Uh, my favorite is still basketball. I like mm. basketball just because it's a lot more quick paced. Yeah. But at the start, I completely hated football. It's, to me, it was so stop and start, you know? They have a play and then they take like a 10 minute break. <laughs> and so that, but I still don't really enjoy watching it on TV, but I enjoy going to the games just because of the atmosphere and stuff. Yeah. And then what did you say in terms of what I still don't? What still just does not work for you in terms of uh, American culture that you just, you can't get on board with? Probably the food. It's just all fast food. And the prices of some food as well, like fruit in America is so expensive. It's really, it's that much more expensive than in the UK? The the UK, it's a lot cheaper. And I think the fruit in the UK is a lot better as well. But the the thing that I miss the most is the food. That's still something I haven't haven't come to terms with. I always talk to my mum about it, how I can't wait to come home to have a home-cooked meal. What food do you get at home that you can't get here? Just the, the classic, when you think of Britain, the typical British food, like uh, the Sunday roast, fish and chips, full English breakfast, a cup of teas. Bangers and mash? Bang, bangers and mash, there you go. exactly. Yeah. The tea, but I mean, you can get British tea out here, but you have to go to like the big publics where they have the international section. <laughs> So I spend I spend some time down the international section in uh, in the big publics. Yeah, you meet some interesting people there, I'm sure. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so this season, your expectations were really high for this team, um, and obviously, uh, you guys have met them so far, right? You're the number one seed. You won the SEC. What do you think has worked so well this season, despite all of the challenges that COVID has presented? I just think that each each day we work extremely hard. Um, we're practicing a lot. We're practicing really hard. The um, the setup of the practice is very good. It's very professional. Um, everyone's everyone's putting in a hundred percent. We all work well to extremely together, and I think that we're just very good at taking it one match at a time. We don't look ahead, and 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 that's how it's always been. You know, NCAA. I'm sure a lot of teams are looking forward. Oh, we go play this team in the last sixteen or the quarters, but. You know, coach is so good at keeping us in the present one match at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, we, why we've been so successful. So you were part of arguably the biggest moment of the season to this point when you clinched the SEC. Uh, but I know it wasn't easy getting there. So can you tell us about that singles match you had against Kentucky and the, the roller coaster that it was? Yeah, that was, I lost the first set of 6-0. I mean, yeah. I blinked, I blinked and it was over. <laughs> um I don't know. I was, I was mentally getting frustrated. I uh, didn't really know what to do. I didn't have any answers, but Tanner helped me a lot with, with that match. Um, just telling me to, we'll get through this set. We'll use the information from this set, no matter what happens for the next set. And I think after that first set was done, I, I've been doing so well in terms of like bouncing back. If I've been down a break or I've been down in sets to, to, to come back and keep going. And I, I just came out in the second set with with a new mentality. I was a lot more resilient, a lot more tough, and I was able to to win the next two sets pretty comfortably. But it was it was not easy at all. I mean, that match could have could have been six zero, six one if if at the start of the second set I just let it slip and I, I wasn't mentally tough. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I talk to a lot of team sport athletes, rarely individual sport athletes. And then I, I always wonder, well, in what ways does the coach have the most influence? Because you're not calling plays, right? It's different than a football yeah. coach, a basketball coach, etc. What role what role do Coach Shelton and, and the rest of the coaches play in pushing this team forward? Where do they provide the most support for you? I mean, I've, uh, the biggest thing is like helping like identify yourself and your game style for the way that you want to play on the court and then being able to implement that in matches based on who you're playing. Um, because of course we speak about, you know, tactics and who we're playing and things like that beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, and then being able to implement your game style to the best of your ability to, to beat that guy who you're going to play. And so that's, that's the biggest thing that they help with in, t- in terms of the matches is identifying yourself. This is the way you play and how we're going to use that game style for, for the person you're going to be playing that day. Mm. 
couple final questions for you. Uh, I know that you said you guys don't like to look ahead in terms of the matches, so I'm not going to ask you that. But how much have you looked ahead for yourself in terms of what ne- what's next? I know, I mean, you could take the extra year. I don't know if you've made a decision on that, but what does your future look like here uh, in in the the short term? I mean, I'm I'm definitely going to come back next year. Um, okay, great. Yeah, so I had that chat with coaches, so I'm I'm definitely going to come back for my fifth year. Um, which is great for me, especially since that I transferred after my second year, as well as the season got cut, sh- cut short. Mm-hmm. So it's a great opportunity for me to, to stay next year. And then in terms of me for the short term, I mean, hopefully we can make a big run in the NCAA. That'll be huge. Hopefully do something this program's never been done before, and that's win NCAA. Um, and then for me the next year, hopefully I can just keep on trying to make my way up the lineup and play as high as possible before trying to go professional and setting myself up up for that. All right, final thing for you. I need you to complete this sentence for me, okay? The Gators will win the national title if... If we keep on working hard, if we keep on competing as hard as we can, um, just never looking, never looking too far ahead in the future, taking one match at a time, and just keep on being humble and, and staying in the moment. And uh, I think if we do all those things that we're going to give ourselves the, the best chance possible because, you know, we have the talent on the team to do it. But if we if we keep on giving 100% in practice and, and staying tough in matches, then I, I think we've got a great shot. Well, Josh, we know that Gator Nation is watching and they are rooting very, very hard for you guys. So good luck in Orlando and, and thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.